Kentucky. Pretty good, Kimberly. That is what I call a spicy broad. And if you're a Trump supporter, you understand that is the highest compliment imaginable, okay? The leftist lunatics will say, oh, it's chauvinistic, it's terrible. Kimberly knows exactly what it means. Yes, folks. The highest compliment imaginable. I'm Matt Leck. Hey, brother, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Not as good as, uh, you know, Trump uh, Jr. is. <laughs> Head over the here. loony left. The loony left won't let you have fun on stage anymore. They won't let you call your squeeze abroad anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, we got a fun show for y'all tonight. Um, we're going to be joined by Aaron in a little bit to talk a little bit about state politics and the left. Uh, Matt has a really great update about this uh, nurses union movement up in Minneapolis. And of course, we're going to be having a lot of fun um, in the post game. You get access to that at patreon.com slash left reckoning. But I don't know, man. I mean, I feel like we got a decent amount of this first section that I want to get into. You know, we might be able to jump in a little bit quicker than we normally do. Unless you had something to say about how we shouldn't be calling women broads anymore. Uh, no, I think it's just funny. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, there and Kimberly Guilfoyle, the former Fox News person, uh, former Gavin Newsom uh, wife, I think. Um, I'll just have some advice to Trump Jr. Like, enjoy it while it lasts. Like, I don't <laughs> like and, you know, don't I, I? he just seems like the guy who's a little bit too like. He's not he's not guarding his heart. And I just worry about a guy like that because he seems a little bit fragile, and uh, you know, and then the the, uh, the sort of um, being compelled to assert dominance over like your female like that in front of a large crowd of people, that seems like a little bit of maybe insecurity to me. Call oh, yeah, her that's it's spicy broad. Sure. The highest uh, the highest compliment. Oh, okay, sure, <laughs> a spicy broad. But look at us. See, the left is filled. All of us were just sweet. Solidarity, you can, folks. You know. Exactly. Just giving you advice. We're looking out for you, bro. Pouring over. Well, I wanted to first say before we get into any of this stuff, uh, solidarity with the U.S. Uh, Railroad. Jesus Christ. You know, that's actually one word I always say like a baby. It's really embarrassing. And I, <laughs> that I do was that great. a lot. I'll get it right this time. Solidarity with U.S. Railroad workers um, who are fighting back against uh, the way that their companies have been treating them and treats them like their inputs into an equation and not as human beings. Um, this goes to a lot of fights that we're seeing. You know, certainly a lot of these union fights are about wages, but a lot of them are about the dystopian and the anti-human way that companies treat workers in this country. Um, but we'll be certainly covering that more um, as we get, you know, as we start to see this out. I mean, there's a potential of there being a strike uh, coming up towards the end of the week. So we'll definitely be keeping our eye out on that. Yeah, the the uh, the anti sort of sick policy basically uh, yeah. for these it's so workers. nasty, it, and it's it's just the hallmark of a time, right? Like this is becoming a a thing where workers are saying you're not treating us like we're actual human beings with like you know bodies to take care of. You're treating us like robots, and mm-hmm. for all the talk of like automation. 
um, what we actually should be talking is is the workers uh, here with us now that get your shit to you uh, and, and being treated like robots as if they were already. It's just it's so crazy, too, when you think about like sick leaves policies in this country. Um, you know, there's a few industry, like all everyone deserves sick leaves policy. That's just like basic kind of human <laughs> understanding, if not even compassion, if we don't even want to go there. Um, but there's a few that it's just always so striking when they don't have them. Transportation being one of them and food service, where if anybody knows if you've worked in the food service industry, uh, trying to call out sick when you have the flu or, or sickness when you're handling food is a lot harder than it should be. Yeah. But let's do I mean, it, you're man. incentivized I mean, not to, right? Like, I mean, I went, I, I when I worked at uh, McDonald's in high school, I definitely showed up with sniffles. Like, that, we've there's all done. no I mean, question about it. Yeah. You know, and people call it doing your dues, but it's getting other people sick because your boss will fire you if you try to uh, to leave or take some time up to heal. All right, um, but let's do this, Matt. <laughs> I'm just going to be completely honest up front, and I know for the haters, this is going to really annoy them because um, I'm probably going to say this a few times throughout this segment, but I really didn't want to give this stuff any attention. And I think we've done a pretty good job at avoiding it um, throughout the entirety of, of Left Reckoning so far. But it comes up so often that I figured that maybe, hopefully, we can do a one and done. And what I'm talking about here is these kind of ideas that percolate from time to time. Right-wing social democracy, socialism merged with, so, um, with social conservatism, or whatever the fuck this absurd MAGA communism thing is. You know, a lot of things, you know, these things are a lot of different things. They're reactionary. They're morally odious. But it's also just not very well thought out. It's not just wrong. It's an example, an extreme one for sure. But it's an example of how, of how a lot of people really miss materialist analysis in politics. And then politics just becomes a kind of weird dance about symbols and vibes, right? And it's not unique just to these folks. Like liberals do it. Conservatives, Lord help them, certainly do it. And worryingly, I do see on our side, people do it as well. You know, people consider themselves to be socialists or progressives. So let's get into it. And I, I'm just going to put my cards on the table right now. I don't think these people are serious thinkers by any stretch of the imagination. I think these folks like Jackson Hankel, Jimmy Dore, Caleb Maupin, and Nick Brana are just grifters. But the kinds of arguments that they make, they do pop up from time to time. And they've come out throughout the left's history, actually. And I think it's really worth addressing. So this most recent thing, MAGA communism, which I think a lot of people might have been introduced to after they saw Jackson Hinkle, who is a self-proclaimed Marxist-Leninist. I haven't seen very much of his work um, that you know draws me to the conclusion that this person is embodying a Leninism or certainly Marxism. Um, but you know, a lot of this came up because he went on Tucker Carlson, which is the end goal of a lot of this stuff, is to get some prime yeah. Fox News. Um, but this MAGA communism thing, it's this idea that the radical left can and should align itself with the Trump movement to take down the establishment. And y'all, that shit is just flat out wrong. First of all, let's just start at the most basic, basic level. First of all, the Trump movement as it currently exists today represents one of the most establishment and elite formations in American politics. Let's just look at who's in the Trump movement. Donald Trump, a billionaire and former president of the United States, Governor Greg Abbott, longtime governor of Texas, who has overseen a protracted war on workers, women, and immigrants, all while wrestling power away from the people in this state. 
people like Governor Ron DeSantis and Youngkin in uh, in Virginia who have been waging war on teachers. Are teachers the elite now? You know, I could keep going down this list of Republican figures. You'd be surprised. You'd no, be surprised. I, I don't doubt it, right? But, you know, it's not just the politicians. Who else is in this movement? Elon Musk, the wealthiest person in the world who is burning down South Texas as we speak right now on his Vanity Pop project, is sidling himself up to Trump and the MAGA people. Peter Thiel, who I think all of you are very familiar with. Kelsey Warren, chief executive of Energy Transfer Partners, um, you know, who with their alliance with the Trump administration got their clearance for the Dakota Access Pipeline. Jeffrey Hittlebrand, oil billionaire, the Ricketts family of TD, uh, TD Ameritrade, hedge fund billionaires like Julian Robinson Jr., farmer billionaires like Robert Duggan. I, I'm getting bored of this, and we could keep on going for another 15, 20 minutes just on the rich and powerful people who are in the Trump movement. Now, look, in America, there are two parties that represent the elite. There's no doubt about this. You're not going to get an argument from me on that. But this is 101 stuff, y'all. You certainly could get a lot of that here if you watch Left Reckoning. Again, I don't take the arguments of these fellows very seriously or as really coherent. Um, oh, but oh, Lord in heaven. Let's, what about this one? Yeah, bring although, this down, Matt. Yeah, although nurses and teachers aren't working class by profession, I'm not denying or downplaying they're facing the same economic issues as the working class. Oh, so they're not the working class if you're saying that. Yeah, we should be more precise in how we use this word. Yeah, um, so. And, you know, that's... Again, man, it's like, it's just vibes, bro. It's just vibes. Yeah. We don't need a material analysis. We don't need Marxist analysis of class. Just vibes, man. Teachers, you know, they're a little stuck up, right? But we love construction workers and things like that, right? Like, that's effectively what their arguments are, right? It's vibes. What do you get from a person? Instead of what the, the real class analysis is, is that teachers are absolutely um, working class people, as are construction workers, um, as are, you know, a lot of different groups of people, the vast majority of people in this country. Um, so, again, I mean, these aren't serious people. So, I'm not going to focus on yeah. them at all, right? Um, because... You know, the, these arguments that they make are not like very coherent, but let's boost it. Let's punch it up a little bit and try to walk through why it's just Steel so. Steel man. Steel right. man, yeah. right? They might say, yes, there are elites in the Trump movement, and that's why it failed. But we're talking about the millions in the Trump movement who voted for change and didn't get it. And on this, yeah, I think any successful working class rooted politics should be interested in recruiting and growing recognizing that these things are a process and that we should be winning working class people away from the right. Like that should not be acceptable to you to see people voting for the right wing. But if that is the argument, right, that the Trump movement may, might have promised some people some things that we might even say is a good thing, right? If you're promising people a war against the establishment, democratizing this country a little bit, I don't really think it's a strong argument case to be made that the Trump movement was really doing this. But like, let's just, again, we're just trying to play the game for a second. Um, you know, we should never be losing to a billionaire like Trump on those kind of subjects. But if your argument is that the Trump movement failed and became corrupted, then why attach yourself to it or attach yourself to the movements of elites that the Trump uh, movement represents? And the reason why they do that is very simple. There's less money in that. And Tucker Carlson infights um, are not going to be available in doing that. But yeah, drop I just. Yeah. Jump in just for one sort of factual note here. This is a uh, this is a 
exit polls for 2016 uh, election. So not Batty Joe, but Hillary Clinton versus Trump, uh, breaking mm-hmm. down by income. Just for, so people can see how people actually vote in this country. And of course, there's a huge population of non-voters. Uh, yeah. But this is about, we're talking about people who are ideologically uh, motivated to vote Republican being some sort of uh, uh, you know, population we need to appeal to. Uh, under 30,000 uh, income, 53% Democrat, 40% Republican. Uh, 30,000 to 50,000, 51% Democrat, 42% Republican. And then you get um, above 50,000, you get more people voting uh, for Republican than – but that's every election too. That's yeah. not – that's nothing new. Hillary wasn't particularly appealing to people who were, didn't have high incomes. That's just how people vote in this country. No, I mean, totally. And like, that's another reason why this argument is so wrong is that like, yeah, there are people in the working class who vote for the right. But this this argument really builds off of a kind of fantasy imaginary America that is not really borne out by the facts or any kind of serious analysis here. But like, let's drop the ulterior motives as to why these people do it, because I think it's very obvious why they do it. Um because like maybe let's imagine someone well-meaning is pitching this. And as we're talking mm-hmm. about, because while I think the folks who are pushing it aren't genuine in their motivations, I think there are plenty of people, and I talk to them every once in a while, um, who find these ideas appealing because they think if you just copy some of the mannerisms and the symbolism, you can create a winning coalition in this country of all of the people who are abused in the society. And then if that's the case, we should do it. And yeah, on our side, what we're trying to do is build a working class movement. And that does mean bringing in a lot of different people. So even if it is true, as Matt was just pointing out, that it's very clear which side of the equation most working class people go, we should also be saying we want to be pulling in all working class people into our movement, right? So this is a project and something that there's something worthwhile in trying to pull people away from the right and bring them over to the left. But let's talk about why it's wrong to think that copying some of these mannerisms and symbolisms out there is wrongheaded. Uh, one is that argument, as Matt was just outlining, is that Trump represented a winning of the American working class. It's just wrong. It's wrong flat out on the numbers when you look at it. Because if this argument goes, if certain people uh, voted for change and anti-establishment and didn't get it because Trump failed, again, why attach yourself to this movement of losers, social fascists, and rich people? A much better tactic is to say, you know, here in Texas, for example, there are like people who like Trump, um, notably somebody like Greg Abbott, one of the most powerful people in the state, who has been abusing the National Guard. There have been deaths of National Guardsmen and serious uh, losses and pain and suffering by those people and their families because of Abbott's absolutely ludicrous, wasteful, and hateful Operation Lone Star. And what are the National Guardsmen doing? They're taking advantage of the Biden-era rules to attempt to form a union of the National Guard. So the answer is very simple. You don't need to attach yourself to the Trumpist bullshit. Support that effort. Plenty of those folks were Trump supporters, but showing the power of a union, the power of solidarity, the the power of solidarity to fight back against elites is a much better foundation for building a real working class politics. It's certainly a much more long lasting and deeper rooted movement than the hate filled ramblings of a billionaire from Queens. Same thing goes, for example, with oil and gas workers, right, who I think would probably fit in the description of somebody like a Hinkle, who is a working class person as compared to a teacher, right? Well, here we argue they're both working class people. And what should we be doing when it comes to them? They have been under assault from Trump loving oil and gas executives for years. Support their labor struggle, the fight for a just transition, and build a real alternative to this neoliberal hellscape, right? 
It's just very simple when it comes to the Trump stuff here. The Trump movement is a loser movement, and it's also a movement of elites. So there's no reason to try to play their game, get excited about the same kinds of things that they're getting excited, push the conspiracy theories that Trump won the election or that Biden is trying to um, you know, <laughs> round up conservatives or something like that. It's a dead end, and it's wrong. But I want to talk about another form of this argument, right? One that I think is a little bit more pervasive than whatever the, the new kind of media strategy for YouTubers is. The argument goes something like this, that the socialist, the socialist left is too socially progressive. And what we need to do to win is to build some kind of social democratic movement that merges itself with social conservatism. This is also wrongheaded, big time. One, it's morally wrong to even say that if the calculation was right, you'd sacrifice your queer brothers and sisters, women's rights, and, minor and minorities to the altar of reformism. But here's the good news, right? Even though I would argue against that even if it was the case, it's not the damn case in this country. These socially reactionary positions that are popular uh, with the Republican Party are not popular with working people. For example, right here in Texas. A recent poll came out that showed Texans are very upset with the abortion ban, and only 11% of Texans support it. Why is it that one side is getting answered to and not the majority of people? It's money again, Bubba. It's the same damn calculation and problem that there is in all of American politics. The socially reactionary politics that get heard by the Republican Party get heard because the evangelical movement is very well funded. And those people get access to the rooms. They have the power to influence elections. Um, and they're the ones who get answered to in this system. Another example of how these fights for freedom are both you know, very viable um, in the political sphere, but also at work too, right? Because it's the bosses who are saying, it's not just good enough that I get to control these people in every waking hour of their working day. I also want to control them at home. Even in like, let's call them socially conservative communities here, where people are, might be less comfortable with abortion, like as something that they would suggest a family member does. What we're finding from all this polling is even if you might, if working class people might personally say they're against abortion, like in principle, they sure as hell don't want the government making that decision for them. So again, this kind of mixing of socially conservative reactionary politics with our movement is morally wrong. And it's also politically wrong because it's not as popular as these people make it out to be. I'm going to say this, and I'm, I think it's, it's worthwhile to say because people are very cowardly about this. The American working class is actually one of the most progressive working classes in the world. Poll after poll shows this, and we shouldn't run from that. It's something that we should be proud of, that despite all of the war on communities of uh, working class communities in this country, that we do have this kind of a basic decency and solidarity and looking out for one another. And we should be proud of it, and we should also be comfortable running on it. Building a movement is really difficult. We all have many different identities and allegiances that are shorted by American societies in different ways. I try my own way to try to demystify some of these. But the promise of socialism and working class politics is not that it happens automatically, but rather it comes out of a conscious project. And that takes work and vision. Because the fact is, right, we are where we want to be. 
The fact is we are out of power. The fact is we don't have a working class party in this country. We don't have a strong working class movement in this country, and we need to be able to build it. But what happens with, you know, fellas, you know, the folks who get sort of wrapped up in this nonsense is that instead of sitting there and trying to make a material analysis of society and trying to chart a way out, they replace all that with vibes and symbols um, and, and try to attach themselves, you know, to different things that they might find to be interesting, cool, or maybe historically successful. And that's not how you build a real movement. Building a real movement is difficult. It means having hard conversations. It means working in solidarity with like large groups of people. And that means there are going to be disagreements. And I think people on our side too need to be a little bit more comfortable with that. But it's very clear here what we don't have to do is sacrifice um, you know, the, the politics of humanity and sociability uh, to the right in order to win. We certainly don't need to start mirroring Trump kind of politicians and the Trump movement, which again is a loser movement. Um, and lastly, like I'll just say this. I'm not very interested in talking to the country club fellows and the sons of the country club fellows. But in my life, as a working class person in the South, I've known, been friends with, and talked regularly with working class people who might consider themselves to be conservatives or Republicans. And you know what? I have a lot of success talking to them about what we're trying to push and what we're trying to do, not by mimicking reactionary right-wing talking points, but by talking to them about the very simple class interests that we share that we're both being abused by this capitalist system, we're being abused by this political system, and that we can find a way to join together and win. And we don't have to sacrifice our solidarity with other human beings, be they minorities, be they queer people, be they women's rights, in order to do that. And this kind of argument that keeps on popping up, and it's popped up long before social media stuff too, that that's the kind of path forward has been proven wrong in practice. And it's also just clearly wrong in theory. I mean, it's to me, it's a little, it's hard for me to take it seriously. And I think probably we won't spend much more time on it because it is like, Oh, did you hear there's this new movement of yeah. critique of critique? Oh, interesting. There's, Oh, we have some more critique to enjoy, right? Like if you want to, if you want to prove us wrong, Next time there's a trucker convoy circling D.C. or at the Canadian border where these guys are calling Trudeau a communist, um, go organize those guys into your a communist party. And then we'll talk. Yeah. Until then, this is just fucking critique. And like Marx was over that shit, right? Like, go do something. And look, can we talk about how they're perverts now? Yeah, go for it, Matt. Well, I mean, just historically, right? I mean, uh, that's, I mean, not, you know, not to get into allegations. The, the People's certain- Party, for example, which is Nick Branagh's, um, who, uh, you know, who is another one of these kind of grifters, um, is an organization that has never been serious in any kind of facet of, of any kind of definition of the word. It was always very clearly a kind of personal branding project to cement this person as a leader of a movement that didn't exist, right? I'm sorry. In order to have a people's party or people's movement, you first have to have the people and they've not been able to, to construct it, right? And look, I'm not coming at somebody for saying um, it's not here now, so you can't go for it, right? Yeah. Literally, that's what we're trying to do here. But it's been very clear from the outset that there was no kind of real interest in trying to build that movement, but rather trying to bolster the career of a few folks, um, you know, alternative indie media people. Um, Questionable. And then, you know, the, the, the kind of like, you know, final punch there 
is that this is an organization that has been embroiled in pretty significant sexual sexual assault allegations and is using the the party um, you know social media feeds and all of their media apparatuses to attack uh, whistleblowers and people who were the victims of of this abuse. Right? You look at something like that and you just aren't you can't sit here and look me straight in the face and say, "Hey, look, that looks like a viable path forward." Um, for building a working class kind of politics, right? Those things were always much more successful at getting attention on right wing media um, outlets than they were at actually mobilizing people um, into any kind of coherent or cohesive movement. Because look, for all of the attacks those folks do on the DSA, DSA has elected representatives. DSA is the largest socialist organization in the country. DSA represents a place where politics is happening. And all this other stuff, frankly, is a distraction, which is why we don't talk about it too much on yeah. this program. But again, you know, when these things pop up regularly enough, it's worth just showing why these things are very wrongheaded. Because I do think that there are people who are just sort of neutral and they might not know all the the you know, the history of, of these, these folks, they might not realize that when they talk about a movement, they're not talking about a movement in any kind of definition that we would use, right? They're talking about subscribers to their channels, right? We don't talk about this show in that way, right? We appreciate all of y'all who support this program, think it does good work, but this isn't the movement. The movement is the work that you're doing in your communities. The movement is the work that you're doing with your comrades. And you see how quick those people are to replace or to mix up those two things. And, you know, it's not surprising as to why. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to close, I did want to throw in um, one last thing, because this is something that does really piss me off, right? Again, talking about this kind of fantastical um, rewriting of history, reimagining of history, reimagining of contemporary American society. I want to correct the record on something I know I've seen uh, Jimmy Dore push. The idea that the Rainbow Coalition, which was a radical grouping of a lot of different working class organizations in Chicago, um, between particularly the Young Patriots, which was an organization of poor white Southerners who had migrated into Chicago, and the Black Panthers. And Jimmy Dore has presented this as an example of how white supremacists and radicals can work together. And it really infuriates me because the history shows the exact opposite. You know, I want to take you all back to Chicago in this time. You have this fella, um, William um, Vesperman, whose nickname was Preacher Man, who founded this organization called the Young Patriots because they recognized that because of the devastation of capitalist exploitation, particularly in Appalachia, right, where, you know, northern capital was coming in, where big international was coming in, ravaging the communities, a lot of people had their lives uprooted because there was no more work for them. It was difficult to get by. And they started migrating in mass to cities like Chicago. Um, Fesserman recognizes that there's this whole group of young people, um, who have been displaced by capitalism are being abused by the police, um, and says, this is a good time to organize these folks. And he organized a group called the young Patriots. And their mission was to organize poor whites to stand up for themselves in solidarity with other communities of colors. Um, you know, there were precursors in Chicago, uh, street gangs, um, and, you know, also groups like that they worked with, groups like the Students for Democratic Society. Uh, the Young Patriots faced extreme violence from the police. Um, one of their taglines, I love it, is a group of uh, four hillbillies by hillbillies. Um, 
And as they started organizing and acting, they realized there was another group that had been organizing with a lot of people who had also migrated, if not very recently, in recent history to Chicago, and that was poor working class black people. Um, And they were organized most successfully at that time by the Black Panthers. Um, Bob Lee, um, who we're going to see in just a second, um, was one of the Illinois Black Panther uh, Party members, a Texan, by the way, um, by the way, Houston. Um, he got into working with the Young Patriots. And after spending time you know, meeting with the Young Patriots, Bob Lee suggested to Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton was one of the legendary leaders of the Black Panthers in Chicago, a very real Marxist. I actually think cuts a, a, almost a very different um, path forward um, for the Black Panthers and some of even the other le- leaders that we saw in, in, in California, right, was actually building something um, that was very, very exciting and could have potentially been very long lasting. Uh, he was murdered by the United States government. Um, but Bob Lee suggested to Fred Hampton that they get together um, with the Young Patriots and other groups like the Young Lords, for example, which I believe is a Puerto Rican uh, gang of, of working class people. Um, and they created this group and they called it the Rainbow Coalition. Um, and we're going to play a little bit of this clip here. Um, there's much more that people can do to read up on this, learn the history. This isn't a history segment of the entire movement, but, um, it's worth understanding these things because it's used cynically by people like Jimmy Dore to make a really nasty and ahistorical point. Um, because what ended up happening there is you saw this really historic and revolutionary movement where you saw something happening in Chicago that the ruling class has been trying to stop for a long damn, damn time which is working people, black and white, uniting together against the capitalist class, right? And it's very important to note that despite what Jimmy Dore might say, because he doesn't read these things, the Young Patriots were not a white supremacist organization. They were a class-based organization recognizing that people were moving from a particular part of the country. The reason why Jimmy Dore, because again, visual thinker, right? It's what happens when you watch YouTube all the time instead of reading anything like Dort has, um, saw that sometimes you'd see a Confederate flag with the Young Patriots. And it's very true. The Young Patriots did use the Confederate flag. For them, they recognized it as a kind of, um, you know, symbol of where they came from, a kind of, you know, rebellious symbol, etc. right? Argue about argue about that you know i think we all know what the confederate flag represents um but when they were utilizing it wasn't in a white nationalist way it was recognizing that the south particularly at that time was being absolutely decimated by capitalism and it was a way to you know to recognize folks but here's the thing about it right even if it did come from like the most misguided um place when the black panthers said hey y'all this flag is uh you know about us being in bondage you know what the young patriots did they didn't kick and scream. They stopped flying it and they apologized for it, right? And instead of it being this story that Jimmy Dore puts forward of like white supremacists and, you know, working class black people coming together, mm-hmm. it's actually a story of what happens when you build class solidarity, that you can overcome a lot of these um, kind of nasty inheritances um, that come with living in American society for people. Right. So it's just absolutely disgusting to me and spinning on the the legacy of these folks to ever suggest something like that. Yeah. And that's why I said perversion. That's a it's a perversion of history. A of willful one too. some of the most offe- like in what. Yeah, exactly. Of, of some of the most offe- like a really offensive one by I must add child of Chicago cop. Yeah, it's very true. So, yeah. yeah. And he was only he was three when like Fred Hampton was killed. 
So, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy can be forgiven for not being in the Young Patriots when he was thrown. I was only three. But I'm guessing might not have been there if he was even a little bit older. So we have here to close it out, just because if we want to remember actually what building solidarity looks like, the radical history that we have in this country of doing it, and maybe some hope for the future, um, we have a short segment actually of a meeting uh, between the Young Patriots um, and the Black Panthers. We'll just play a couple minutes of it um, because it just shows and it should inspire some some hope for you. Because what's annoying to me about all of these folks, just in closing, is that they act one, they're just mimicking the right. And it's 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 a grift. It's not a serious movement. Um, but two, what does frustrate me about it is that there are people out there who, you know, are, are in and out of like leftist media, which is fine. Really, you shouldn't be spending all of your time on this kind of stuff. Right. Um, but they don't get what these people are really arguing for. And they think, oh, these people are just talking about building coalitions and, and solidarity and a growing movement. And you just couldn't be more wrong. Um, there are people who are trying to do that. I would include us as uh, among them through, you know, this kind of work, but most importantly, um, through, through the work of supporting all of the really exciting social movements that we're seeing pop up across this country and across the world. Um, but I wanted to play this because like, if that is something that speaks to you and it should, right. The idea of building up real working class solidarity across maybe different groups that American media and American society is sort of trying to keep separate. You should look um, to the legacy of the black Panthers and the young Patriots in a real clear eyed historical way. And not this kind of reactionary um, <laughs> clickbait following um, way that it's being presented by some of these folks. But we can just play a couple minutes of this because I think it's a very nice clip. I'm from Missouri. Yeah. You know, I thought the boy had a chance to. <laughs> this is poor people's power. And that's what this whole campaign of buttons all about that we've been passing around the people. People that want to take over and have a government for their self. That they'll be treated right. That's what it's all about. I want to introduce a man to come over tonight from another part of town, but he's fighting for some of the same causes we're talk, uh, fighting for her and start the meeting off. So I'm going to introduce you to Bob Lee here and let him rap a little while. Bob. I'm a Black Panther. I'm a section leader of the Black Panther. This is Paul. He's a security man. This is Sister Ruby. Uh, we met with Junebug and his brothers uh, last Wednesday night, last week, at the Church of Three Crosses, where we both had a chance to rap, get together. Panthers are here are here. Panthers are here. Yeah. For uptown. Okay. For anyone who lives in uptown. We brown, green, yellow, purple, or pink. But I'm saying Panthers are here, and you have to tell us what we can do, and what we can do together. We come here with our hearts open, you can't supervise us, where we can be of help to you. One thing we're going to have to do is put our heads together and figure out where we can help Uptown, help the people in Uptown. Right. And the thing is that I want everybody who's got any questions at all to speak them up and say them now. Who here is concerned people? We can, uh, we can pull. I mean, 
I highly suggest people watch the um, entire movie if you want to check it out. I mean, all of these things have been captured on film. Um, not everything, obviously, but a fair amount of, of, of footage is out there of, of these meetings and these uh, movements. Um, you can find a really great movie called American Revolution 2. Um, there's also work you can read in Jacobin that breaks this down as well. I mean, there, there's a real legacy here um, that's worth, you know, upholding. And I think it's it's important for us to also be able to own it because there are going to be kind of slimy reactionaries who come in and are going to try to own your history for you if you don't come in and uh, claim it for yourself and uh, uphold it and build off of it. But yeah. And uh, I'll just add, I uh, just set to premiere tonight at midnight, our conversation, David, uh, kind of on this topic, actually, uh, when I had much longer hair, <laughs> uh, can patriotism be revolutionary, uh, George Orwell's England or England. So this is something, this is a recurring topic that needs yeah. to be treated like with, I think, care and, um, and you know, long hair like that. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm always happy to talk about it. You can also see me. I was on Jackman, I think, last week uh, with Jen Pan talking about social, um, you know, socialism and American patriotism. You know, I think there's there's plenty of conversation to be had on this. Um, but we appreciate all of you all so much. Um, we have this really great uh, conversation coming up and then we have an update on this fight that's going on in Minneapolis. If you like the work that we've been doing, if you want to see this continue to grow and, to, you know, have a bigger share of the, the left media space, I highly uh, you know, recommend that you support us on patreon.com uh, slash left reckoning. Or if you don't feel like signing up in the long term, you can always buy a hat or a t-shirt. You can get those at our website, leftreckoning.com uh, slash store. And don't forget, uh, we're going to be hanging out with Ben Burgess, Danny Bessner, Nando Villa, Anna Kasperian, uh, Deep State Cuba, C. Derek Varn in Los Angeles on October 23rd. Uh, it'd be really great if we could get a big show in there and we could, uh, meet all the folks out there who've been listening to this program all this time. Yeah. Um, LA people come oh, hang out at the, sorry, just let me remind people where to, where that's at. It's at the telegram ballroom. Um, right. But yes, yeah, uh, we have this really great conversation with Aaron on, uh, you know, some of the really exciting and important fights that are happening across the country right now on the state level. Yep. Aaron of uh, the state's project, uh, director of research uh, here is, and we'll be back with the, uh, just to touch on the uh, uh, Minnesota nurses strike. All right, we are back. Welcome, Left Reckoners. I'm Matt Leck. With me, as always, David Griscom. Hello, David. Hey, man. How are you doing, brother? Uh, I'm doing well. And joining us today is an electoral expert uh, that we're going to consult, Aaron Kleinman. You know him at, at, as at Bobby Big Wheel on Twitter or around the Majority Report offices as at Big Fat Daddy, which Sam said trying to remember <laughs> what uh, his at was. <laughs> um, uh, Aaron Kleinman. <laughs> Uh, Aaron, uh, welcome to Left Reckoning, and uh, give yourself any more introduction uh, you, you might want. I don't know how I top Big Fat Daddy. Um, <laughs> I think that's what I'm calling Brian Dave all these days. I'm, I'm really excited for the, the – no. Um, yeah, so um, <laughs> while I'm not being called Big Fat Daddy at uh, the Majority Report offices, I am the director of research at the States Project, which is a group that – tries to connect the importance of state legislatures to basically every aspect of our lives and 
bring people together to help build a healthy, sustainable, and prosperous future for everyone. Now, before I ask you about how this might have changed in the Biden era, what does it mean when you say you focus on states? Why? Yeah, um, so state le- so state lawmakers in particular are the most powerful politicians that you probably haven't even heard of. Um, you know, states, and especially we really are seeing this now uh, after the Dobbs decision and with kind of the threats to democracy. But states have really, and state legislatures in particular, have a very inherent power of policymaking that too often gets ignored. And so much uh, energy and organizing takes place, especially at the federal level, but you can have just so much more impact at the state level. And one really good example of that is that, you know, a competitive state legislative election costs something like 3% of a competitive Senate election just to give you a scope of kind of just like how much, you know, how under-resourced they are relative to the federal level. And so, you know, our mission is to kind of connect the work that, you know, can be done in states to, you know, people who want to make a difference in their communities. Uh, Interesting. So now let's talk about uh, a few narratives that we've heard going into this election season. The first one earlier in the year, which is that there's going to be a red wave, uh, everyone's sick of, you know, Fauci authoritarianism and um, critical race theory. And then we have this post road decision um, um, era. Like, do you have a read on which is it going to be a mix of both? Is it going to be uh, Democrats saved by the road decision? Uh, what, do, what do you think about that? Just general headwinds leading into this election season? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's funny. You mentioned that there's been this kind of change in um the conventional wisdom about what's going to happen in this election. And I actually, you know, uh, publicly and privately, I've been pretty consistent. I think it's going to be a pretty evenly split um, midterm election. And it's, and so that just makes it so that kind of pinpointing the areas that are going to be the closest really is going to be important. And we're doing that hard work every day, trying to figure out where the election is going to be the closest and helping out the candidates in those races. Now kind of zooming out a bit, kind of, you know, well, why have I been saying that? And it's, you know, the, you know, typically a party, when they hold the presidency, ends up losing seats in an election. The theory behind that being, you know, they tend to overstep their mandate, they misread the electorate, and the other party can end up picking up seats. Um, but what you saw in, in 2020 was you really didn't have that very much. You, you know, I don't think anyone's really thinking that Joe Biden is governing outside of his mandate. Um, but what you do have, um, particularly at the state level, is just you have a lot of far-right legislatures really threatening people's freedoms. And obviously, in line of the Dobbs decision, that's a big one, where you have some, you know, you have laws that would prevent uh, abortions even if the life of the mother was at risk, even in the case of rape or incest, just really draconian, backward things that are really threatening to people. But you also have threatening, like even though even larger threats to freedom where you have see lawmakers talking about how they can override the will of their own voters uh, in choosing what happens in presidential elections. Um, there's currently um, a case pending before the Supreme court called Moore v. Harper. And I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, but basically the North Carolina legislature, uh, you know, right-wing legislature um, is saying we don't have to abide any limits on us from either the executive or judicial branches to set rules for elections. It's a really, and 
if the Supreme Court rules for them, and there's a, a good chance they will, it just totally unravels a lot of kind of checks and balances on legislatures. And the only way that we'll be able to really kind of ensure our the freedom of to choose who you want representing you is to vote for, you know, against far right uh, state lawmakers. And that's what we're trying to do. Okay. Yeah. So let's start maybe there when, with zoom in what, uh, where in sort of far right legislatures, red States, I guess, colloquially they, they're called, but like, what, where would you like to start? Yeah. Um, so, you know, and the thing is like a lot of States that, you know, went for Biden in 2020, they have Republican legislatures. You have New Hampshire as a Republican legislature, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all these states have Republican legislatures. Um, you know, some of them is due to gerrymandering. Others, it's just due to, you know, the far right's been organizing at the state legislative level far longer, and they have a head start. But yet, those are kind of some of our key electoral states. Also, Minnesota um, is one of mm-hmm. uh, three sta- states that has a split state legislature. Um, and so we're trying to hold the House there while flipping the Senate as well. And so, and again, if you, you want to talk, zoom into those states a little more closely, you know, in the Arizona Senate, we just need to flip one seat and we'll break mm-hmm. right-wing power there. That's it. It's, we're so close. In Michigan, the state Senate there is one of the best pickup opportunities of the cycle uh, because um, they used to have a Republican gerrymander in the state legislature there. In fact, Democrats got more votes in every state house election in Michigan in the past decade in every election except for one. But it's so gerrymandered, they never got control. But they have an independent redistricting commission now, and they created maps that uh, either party could win on for both chambers. And the Senate map is, you know, particularly, you know, representative of the state. We think we can, you know, win a majority on that. Um, you know, Pennsylvania is a state where we're in a bit more of a hole. We have to flip uh, 12 seats in the House. But, I mean, even making progress there is huge because, um, you know, in Pennsylvania also, if you're worried about post-election shenanigans, you can actually swear in state lawmakers in Pennsylvania in December. So it could prevent a 2024 kind of election theft if uh, we can kind of win a power there. So then New Hampshire, again, you know, if you just if we can win all the seats that Biden carried, we can, you know, break right wing control in the chambers there. Is that is the uh, sort of election integrity? Is that um, is that more of a pronounced focus than the uh, abortion stuff as far as like prioritizing let uh, state legislators is um or is that are those are these two different goals basically i say they're they're congruent like you know basically protecting people's right to choose and picking their right to choose who they want representing them they are intertwined because when you look at the right wing in this country it's all about you know it's a very kind of authoritarian movement and that manifests itself in all sorts of ways so when you're going up against that i mean it's really letting people know that so many of their freedoms are being mm-hmm. threatened right now in your in their state capitals so they you know obviously we're only backing candidates that we know will basically support both freedoms the freedom mm-hmm. to you know choose and the freedom to choose who your representatives are yeah, I mean, I, I just think like, um, you know, one thing here in Texas that I've been trying to remind folks of is that, um, you know, despite there being a matrix of like wide variety of opinions on, for example, the subject of abortion, uh, the fact is, is that the state government here is legislating from like the extreme minority in the sense of people who want like an outright ban. And like, I, I do just totally agree that these things are very, you know, congruent and like connected to say, um, you know, we, we are having a fight right now. 
not just to decide what we want on certain issues, but whether or not we should have the ability at all to uh, influence the people who make laws in our name. Yeah. And I mean, and in Texas, I think it was particularly striking kind of the attacks on freedom there with SB8, because that bill really was, it was authoritarian in a way that you don't really see that much. It was turning neighbor against neighbor. It was, it was like, it really was like an authoritarian state where people are kind of afraid of being snitched on by their friends and colleagues. I mean, that's not the type of state you want to live in. That's not the type of country you want to live in. That's what we're up against right now. And so, you know, I see all of these freedoms that we're trying to protect as connected to each other. You know, now you bring up Texas, are you noticing anything? Blake Masters is uh, throwing all of his chips on. He's going to be able to shave off enough Latino support that uh, they're going to be competitive. What are you seeing with regards to, I guess, the sort of hashtag walk away from the Democratic Party from Latinos or any other, like women, anything like that? Um, You know, I I don't think that right i I would say the what the far right was banking on heading into this election for months and months i would say that them and the crypto people if you go back a few months it was the same thing that they were looking on they're just line go up and basically they have been winding up for months on inflation is just going to keep going up Mm -hmm. gas prices are just going to keep going up and we can say or do whatever we want and we'll still be able to win and the now inflation uh, is subsiding, uh, gas prices are going down, and they're scrambling uh, mm. because they have nominated a lot of very far right candidates who are very out of step with their communities. Uh, there are people, there are candidates in swing states who are telling people to watch 2000 Mules and uh, swing seats, I should say, um, they, that, that are doing QAnon hashtags. Um, that believe, you know, many, many ones who believe that, that don't think that the 2020 election was valid and want to overthrow it. Um, I think one we saw was even asking to go to January 6th, even if she wasn't actually there. Um, you know, you have this, and so, you know, I think what, what we need to do right now is kind of highlight for people, Hey, um, you have a very far right and kind of, uh, you know, a far right party, very out of step with you. And like, there are a lot of people who might have voted Republican at the state level for a while, even if they kind of going increasingly, you know, disgusted with Trump. And, you know, and I think, you know, what the message is, is like, you know, whatever you didn't like about Trump, uh, for the people who, you know, didn't like Trump, but, you know, it's here. And by the way, if you, you know, people who vote for Trump for, they thought he was going to bring back jobs, they thought he was a good businessman. It's like, well, you know, what, or and they also usually thought that hey he actually was you know uh, in 2016 um, he was the considered the most moderate Republican nominee in, in a long time right. and so it's like showing no I mean these people really are just very far right uh, not just there and they believe all these conspiracies and it's just you know getting that into people's heads is the challenge right now and that's what we're focused on every day. Interesting. What are some ways you uh, do that? Well, um, you know. We have a kind of a, a political team that really works really closely with our allies and state, usually the caucuses, to kind of make sure that people know about that. And so uh, a lot of what we do is we try to fund that work, um, either by sending money directly to campaigns through our Give Smart program, or we also have a, a Giving Circles program where people want to get together with their friends and raise money together um, you know, for the states. We can help with that as well. 
And you can check out both of those programs at our website, uh, statesproject.org. Talk to me a little bit more about Minnesota. I mean, it's a state that I'm endlessly fascinated with. I've been heartened by their sort of rejection of Trump, uh, particularly. I must say I was a little bit alarmed at how close Ilhan Omar's primary was. Um, what, what's going on in Minnesota from your perspective? Um, so what's going on in Minnesota? I, I'm, you know, you have a gubernatorial nominee, Scott Jensen, who uh, very regressive candidate. Um, he um, supported a total uh, ban on abortion. He's not trying to walk that back. Um, but, um, you know, he's on tape saying he supports that. His running mate, Matt Burke, uh, who you might remember as a member of the Minnesota Vikings, uh, well, he's uh, even more, you know, he's even more extreme than Jensen. And what I've noticed in Minnesota is that a lot of the state legislative candidates take their cues from them. And they, you know, so you have a very, you know, regressive uh, GOP ticket in Minnesota. And also, Jensen is notably pretty anti vax. And you're seeing a lot of very anti vax state legislative nominees falling off of him. Also, Minnesota, uh, as you may know, is home to uh, pillow magnate Mike Lindell. And he tends to be a pretty popular guy within Republican circles there. And so a lot of, you know, again, and these are candidates in swing seats, candidates in seats that were decided by like one or two points in the last election are cozying up to, you know, Lindell and Jensen and Burke. And, you know, it's just we got to, you know, get the word out to all the people in the state that, hey, you know, the GOP ticket in Minnesota has some deeply right wing views that are very out of step with the state. And very different from Minnesota does have a tradition of like moderate Republicans, actually, decades ago. You know, some a lot of, you know, former uh, Minnesota Republicans have since like, you know, they endorsed like Clinton in 16 and Biden in 20. These aren't those Republicans. And even though people sometimes vote in the state legislative like they are. And so it's just getting into people's heads. Hey, these are really dangerous candidates right now. Yeah, I I, I can say like the, the Minnesota GOP is more like to me it whiffs of like um white nationalist more than like even the like the dakotas they seem a little bit more like podunk and like not quite as like evolved (laughs) ideologically there's some dark stuff going on in the minnesota gop that and and the anti-vax stuff am i too quick to celebrate the death of anti-vax as a political campaign uh issue uh yeah okay go on yeah um i'm sorry and first of all, I I've, I've met some great lawmakers from the Dakotas working very hard. It's you know it's, it's tough there, but they're, do, they're doing right, their right. best. Um, and um, you know Minnesota, yeah, um, and, to, and so I mean it's not front. The thing about it, it's like it's not like thankfully, thankfully, thankfully. I I don't see it as like an issue necessarily. I don't think you know they're not using it to peel off Democratic voters in a way I fear that they might have done maybe like earlier this year it seems to have faded away and and again he's politicizing vaccination would be just about the one of the worst things that could happen to the health of this country um but that doesn't mean those views against vaccination have gone away um they're just not being put front and center anymore and so again it is like it it is a really concerning group of candidates there and, and minnesota could see some really kind of terrible public health outcomes if the Republican Party there can, you know, make headway in this election. And you think there's a decent chance of them doing so? Like I saw a poll that showed walls up quite a bit, but 18, do you think that- it, Yeah, and so, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the thing about, poll, like, polls, um, you know, what we've seen over the past few years is that 
uh, polls in the Midwest have been just like really unreliable. I think it's just been very hard to model the electorate um, mm. in the Midwest because it's a little more homogenous than it is in other states. Um, and so because of that, um, you know, polls have been off. I mean, I think most people in state do think that uh, Governor Walls is ahead right now, but I don't think anyone thinks he's actually ahead 18 points. And right. similarly, you know, he, you know, he, he, if, if he wins, but then Republicans hold the legislature there, it still could create a lot of problems for the state. Um, and, mm. you know, they did run a bit behind him in 2018 uh, when, when he first ran for election. So it, it still is just really important to make sure that people know how radical the entire Republican ticket is in that state. Um, any other sort of, I guess, not red legislatures, um, but legislatures where we could move to be a little bit more offensive for good. Um, is there any races we should be keeping an eye on in that front? Well, I would say, you know, Maine is one where, you know, we helped flip them in 2018. And since then, Maine's been on a tear. Um, they capped insulin prices, something that the federal government uh, wouldn't do. Uh, but, you know, Maine got done at the States. They've done a lot on clean water and clean air and lowering other ways to lower health, uh, healthcare prices. You know, they've been doing really well. And Maine is a state where also you really kind of can see what a difference uh, you can make at the state legislative level versus the federal. Because um, if you look at how much money Sarah Gideon had left over, let alone spent left over in her account, we spent 1% of that in 2020 uh, on the state Senate there, and we are actually able to expand the majority. Uh, yeah, and, and, just, and again, so it's like really, if you focus on the states, you can just make so much more of an impact. Uh, but the issue may, you know, hey, it's, you know, you never know how um, a midterm when your party holds the presidency is going to go. And their new state house map, uh, actually, Trump actually carried a majority of the districts on it in 2016. So there's a chance that, you know, they could really undo all that. So in Maine, it's really, we're kind of protecting what we've done so far. If we can keep kind of electing good legislatures in Maine, they can keep making progress and keep doing great things. They're really kind of a model. So, I mean, uh, we talked a little bit about maybe some of the issues that are are worth hitting, but like, you know, in, in your seat, as you're watching the country, I mean, how are you feeling about both uh, money that's being raised and potential turnout, um, you know, particularly for like those races that aren't the sexiest? Like I know like here in Texas, obviously, everyone's paying a lot of attention to the yeah. better race. Um, but if you look down ballot for the statewide offices, which are also really important, like, yeah, you know, pumping up the numbers that Rochelle Garza is getting um, or any of these other folks would be a huge difference. Um, compared to the amount of money that Beto is able to sort of uh, fundraise over there. I'm just curious, general litmus, how you're feeling about turnout and, and fundraising going into this uh, with midterm. Yeah, so uh, really kind of, it's funny, like the widespread feeling among practitioners really across the ideological spectrum this year is that turnout's going to be huge. So that's mm. kind of a relative thing because like, like it's going to be bigger than 2018. Well, in 2018, turnout was, I think, what, like 53%. So it's actually like, Relatively, but it's just, you know, it's going to be a high, high turnout for a midterm, I think is generally mm-hmm. what people think. Um, but at the same time, you know, both sides can turn out. And so we still need to turn out our people. I think definitely overturning, you know, one, you know, unfortunate, you know, fact is, Do- is Roe was overturned, Dobbs is the law of the land. 
Um, and that, but you know, it has energized a lot of people who maybe weren't necessarily as invested in it. And especially around states, because they're seeing just how much of their lives are governed, you know, not from DC, but from their state capital. Uh, and so, you know, it is heartening to see, though I wish I could guarantee more. And I think it, the money is a similar thing where it's heartening to see that people really have been receptive to our message, that states really matter, that you can make such a big mm -hmm. difference there. Um, but we, you know, like there's still, you know, right now there's about $1.6 billion in dark money floating around out there uh, by the same people who are really the architects of the GOP strategy to uh, run really regressive policy through states. And so, you know, um, it's a run through the tape thing and we, you know, and so we're, we're keeping at it. So if you want to help out again, please go to statesproject.org. Um, I'm trying to think, is there any states that we haven't uh, covered that you think we should, uh, we should uh, nod toward? Yeah. Um, so um, a couple of other states where we're trying to protect majorities are, are Alaska and Nevada Nevada, um, again, that's another state that's made a lot of really great headway on a lot of different issues, especially things like democracy, um, you know, in a tough year. And that's a state, too, where if they're if kind of the trends around Latino voters uh, continue uh, at their current pace, um, you could see uh, a bit of a regression there as well. So we're working hard to maintain that majority. Uh, similarly, in Alaska, Alaska is a really interesting state. Um, I think you saw with the recent. U.S. House election, they have a new electoral system that um, really can help defeat the furthest right candidates, which uh, is really exciting. And also in the state house there today, there's actually a coalition of Democrats, independents and uh, kind of uh, civic minded, civic minded Republicans um, who are willing to join together and run that chamber and really stop their governor, who's really pretty far right, his worst successes. And so uh, those are two states that as well. And then similarly, there's uh, North Carolina and uh, Nebraska. Those are states where actually supermajority thresholds are really important. In North Carolina, you have a Democratic governor who's willing to stand up on a lot of really important issues, especially around reproductive freedom. Um, but if Republicans can just flip, I think it's just two more seats. Mm. Uh, or really, I mean, if they flip any more seats, um, it really kind of puts some of his vetoes at risk. And so not only just kind of protecting against supermajority, but, you know, ideally even gaining seats, because even in a good year, it'd be possible to win a majority in their state has there. So North Carolina uh, is a state where, where it's really important to, at the very least, pre prevent a supermajority. And then in Nebraska, um, the only state with only one legislative chamber, uh, you have a supermajority threshold for the state budget. And uh, you have a filibuster, uh, pretty strong filibuster tradition. And so if you can prevent um, a supermajority there, and we're, they're just one seat away from that, you can really prevent a lot of the worst things. And you know, people don't think about the state budget a lot in terms of mm -hmm. criminal but that thing is, you know, in any state, that's such a huge deal for people who live there every day. And so Nebraska is really a critical state, too. And from one final question, from your perspective of somebody interested in winning elections for candidates and helping them win elections, how helpful has active, you know, dark Brandon been um, for the Democrats? Like, it, let's like, has that been noticeable? Like the student loan stuff and maybe some of the climate stuff and minor stuff. Is that noticeable or is it not noticeable? You know, it's fine. like I I believe in vibes. Uh, I believe vibes are huge and good vibes are good. I, I will say this too is I, you know, I, 
in my in my job, a lot more of my job is keeping an eye on the far right uh, and and helping out kind of fight against them. Less there are other people on my team that do more kind of working within the uh, Democratic campaigns. And one thing I've noticed is that over the past month, the far right really has had the wind taken out of their sails a little bit. And so I do believe that the you know the vibes overall are better. Um, they're scrambling a little bit, and I think we just need to need to keep our foot on the gas. Need to kind of keep hammering away. Just kind of like what a group of really dangerous people they've nominated. And, you know, hopefully, you know, and I, I'm hopeful that the American people will reject these forms of kind of far right politics that have cropped up. And I'm hopeful it's coming to the country that we keep making progress. Very good. Aaron Kleiman. Aaron is the director of research at the States Project US at States Project US. You can follow him at Bobby Big Wheel on Twitter. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. All right, folks. Welcome back. Thanks. Uh, thanks to Aaron for uh, joining us there. Uh, that's a, uh, a states the states project. Um, let's uh, talk about a big strike, shall we? Yeah. What's going on in uh, Minnesota, Matt? So uh, Jeff Bezos's Washington Post issued one of my favorite corrections of the year uh, today. We'll get to that later, but uh, to start with the headline here. Largest private sector nurses strike in U.S. history begins in Minnesota. The quote from one nurse, I can't give my patients the care they deserve. About 15,000 nurses in Minnesota walked off the job Monday to protest understaffing and overwork, marking the largest strike of private sector nurses in U.S. history. Slated to last three days, the strike spotlights nationwide nursing shortages exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic that often result in patients not receiving adequate quick care. Tensions remain high between nurses and healthcare administrators across the country, and there are signs that work stoppages could spread to other states. Minnesota nurses charge that some units could uh, do go without a lead nurse on duty and that nurses fresh out of school are delegated assignments typically held by more experienced nurses across some hicks, some I can't speak across some 16 hospitals where strikes are expected. And we all know this is true. And keep in mind that these facts are what is being put on the public record and how they are not refuted. The nurses are demanding a role in staffing plans, changes to shifts, scheduling practices and higher wages. I can't give my patients the care they deserve, says Chris Rubesh, the vice president of Minnesota Nurses Association and a nurse at Essentia Health in Duluth. Call lights go unanswered. Patients should only be waiting for a few seconds or minutes if they soil themselves or their oxygen came unplugged or they need to go to the bathroom. But that could take 10 minutes or more. Those are things that can't wait. I mean, can you imagine? And one of the other nurses says, like, if it was my person in the hospital, I wouldn't leave their side. Mm-hmm. Because and we have these the, the wonders of technology. You have a nurse call switch right at your bed. You're in discomfort. You need uh, you need assistance. Your oxygen came loose. You hit a button. A nurse is supposed to be right there. That's that's the that's what we need, and we do not have that right now. Um, the Minnesota Nurses Association. Uh, the nurses union said hospital administrators have continued to refuse solutions on understaffing and safety in contract negotiations. It said nurses have increasingly been 
asked to take on more patients for bedside care to make up for labor shortages, exacerbating burnout and high turnover. Some hospitals have offered increased safety protocols, blah, 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 uh, but have not budged on other safety and staffing-related demands. The union has proposed new mechanisms for nurses to have stronger say in how the, the wards are staffed, including a committee made up of nurses and management at each hospital. I mean, I think that's fairly generous. You can include some managers there. I would, frankly, maybe include some doctors, but I don't know. Like I don't know if these business degreed folks are the ones we need in charge of healthcare, and I think fundamentally, exactly that's where we need to that's where we need to go. It has also proposed protections against retaliation for nurses who report understaffing. I mean that should go without saying. Striking nurses at some hospitals said their shifts are often short, five to ten nurses forcing nurses to take on more patients than they can handle. For years, hospitals in the United States have faced understaffing problems. A surge in demand and increased safety risks for nurses during the pandemic accelerated those trends. The number of healthcare workers in the United States has still not recovered to its pre-pandemic levels, down 37,000 workers compared to February 2020. At the same time, demand for healthcare services has steadily increased during the pandemic with the backlog of people who delayed care now seeking medical attention. And you will notice this. The management company will say, well, we lost all this money during the pandemic. Well, it's like that's a problem for a business, um, mm-hmm. but that's no reason to plan for the future and attack these labor rights of Minnesota nurses. We're going to get to why Minnesota is actually very good for nurses typically and why that's under attack right now. No, um, I mean, especially for something that's yeah. so socially necessary like this too. Right. Um, uh and uh, let's see, I think I got one more. Oh, yeah, here's the correction. The correction right at the top of the story. A previous version of the story incorrectly stated that there was no indication that the work stoppages would spread to other states. However, unions for nurses in at least two other states have also authorized strikes over the past month. The article has been corrected. Here's the correcting paragraph. There are some signs that nurse and other healthcare worker strikes could spill over to other other states in the coming weeks. 4,000 nurses with the Michigan Nurses Association voted earlier this month to authorize a strike related to understaffing concerns, and 7,000 healthcare workers in Oregon have also authorized a work stoppage. University of Wisconsin nurses narrowly averted strike this week. Therapists and clinicians in Hawaii in California, are currently in the fourth week of what has become the longest-running mental health care strike over inadequate staffing levels. That mental health care strike is not um, uh, that's not something that's foreign to um, what is it? Uh, Alina Health, which is the one which runs one of the hospitals being struck by the nurses, was also recently struck by mental health professionals. Four hundred workers at Alina Health and uh, M Health Fairview. Um, were prepared to strike again, said they were prepared to strike again uh, uh, earlier this month. Um, The first time they uh, struck was in May. That was after decided to form a union in 2021 and the same management company not uh, honoring negotiations. So this this is um, a broad problem, shall we say. And this is a problem, again, with running hospitals like a business. Um, Continue here. I want to put this in the context here. Um, Minneapolis is actually fairly good for as far as wages go. Um, and you're there. This is being used against these uh, workers uh, um, mm-hmm. in negotiations. Classic. Right. We all know that uh, uh, inflation has gone up and uh, wage increases haven't been forthcoming. And so these uh, nurses are now working or have been working without a contract. And they want a wage increase to continue this 
um, position that they have in on top of the safety stuff. And that should absolutely um, be doable um, when you consider another aspect, uh, which is how these, this management company is compensating for the striking workers, which is to bring in uh, travel nurses. And here's a, uh, a report from WCCO from Minnesota on this. And I just want to play a little bit of this here. And then one up the block just outside Children's Minnesota. Now, these nurses, as we've mentioned, are out here as traveling nurses are inside trying to fill the void. In fact, this morning we saw about eight buses filled with traveling nurses pull into Abbott as the strike nurses were setting up outside. That was at about 6.30 this morning. The strike nurses say their traveling counterparts just cannot provide the same quality of care as they can. They don't know our policies, our protocols. They don't know where stuff is. How does our unit work? How do our patients work? And that, they just, you can't learn that in a couple days of training. And that's an issue for us. Now, just to put into perspective some of the costs to the hospitals during this strike, the strike nurses shared some job postings circulating among the nurses. The advertisements for those traveling nurses specifically for this strike here. Now, on the low end, some are about $8,000 for the three days of the strike plus the two days over the weekend for training. And on the high end, it's about 13000 So at bare minimum, some of these traveling nurses are making just under $1,600 a day. Strike nurses have asked for about a 30% wage increase over the course of three years. So that's what the management company is doing. So you have these nurses and the management comes to them with their business degrees and says, actually, you're making more than Chicago. So we're going to need to cut that. We need to cut you down to size. Um, and if you don't accept that, we're going to fly nurses out here and pay them like they're on the Minnesota Timberwolves at the end of the bench. Um, $8,000 a week on the low end, that's about $400,000 a year. And they're, that's an expense that they're willing to pay to maintain control over these workers and to cut them down to size. And those, ben- those wages and that safety will need to be fought for because that's the, that's the uh, way we do uh, resource, uh, you know, society. <laughs> things like healthcare in this country. We have to you know, negotiate with a business degree person. Oh, you're muted, David. It's very telling, too, just how fearful bosses are of any kind of labor say in these things, regardless of it's healthcare or Starbucks or anywhere. Like, they will take losses. They will pay other people more um, as long as they have, like, a more compliant and expendable workforce because they very much fear any kind of, you know, democratic power sharing uh, when it comes to management of these institutions. And in this case, it's one of those where it's absolutely absurd, as you've been alluding to, um, where you have people who understand the human body, the human needs, the standard of care for people versus folks who went to a four-year degree business school trying to find ways to make the number go up on their spreadsheet, right? It's like, it's absolutely um ridiculous to sit here and act like, you know, the, uh, the administrators have any better conception of how to care for people who are sick and need help. Of course not. And, and this is the other point that I think is a real tell, especially if you're like a nurse and is wondering and maybe like unsure which way it's very telling that the management never says, no, that's not true about the safety stuff. Uh, everything's fine with regards to like, if you're People, if you're if you know somebody a loved one is receiving care in the hospital that's all fine 
what they're saying is the nurses union is it's illegal that they're on strike. They should appeal to mediation. And that's and so they chose to strike. Yeah. Right. So they're not even denying the unsafe conditions. They're simply like trying to pull like a fairly crude uh, well, if you strike, well, it's your fault, guys. Like that's that's as sophisticated as the responses here. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, best of luck and solidarity with all the people there on strike. And it's horrible that has to come to this because you know it does mean for patients like a lower um, quality of, of of care, and that's on the business owners um, who are forcing people into the situation where they have to fight you know, for their basic kind of human rights and dignity here uh, to make sure that yeah. they're safe and the patients are safe in the long term. Um, all of the punishment, all of the things that are are, are going to be difficult for patients in the next, you know, few days is it's on the business folks. It's it's as clear as that. Yeah. And I mean, I just can't get over the the saying like, oh, we've got to tighten our belts because of the pandemic. No, we have to expand because healthcare is a necessity and yeah. you're not doing it fucking safely with your fucking business degree. So and, get the fuck out of here. And it just again, it shows like from from what we're seeing in Minneapolis to what we've seen with like rural um, hospitals across the country. We have just been seeing time and time again how the free market system is bad in most cases. But in th- this one especially is just un- incapable of providing quality care uh, to people across the board, right? If it's if it's nurses being pushed in a situation where they have to go and strike in Minneapolis, or if it's all these rural hospitals closing across the country because the hospitals can't make enough money to get by and hire those super smart business consultants to run it for them. Um, yeah. You know, there's just no better argument than capitalism, capitalist healthcare and practice as to why we need uh, socialized medicine in this country. I mean, it's a fucking joke, man. T. Denny Sanford, uh, who owns a bunch of hospitals across the Dakotas, literally is being investigated for child porn. I'm not sure what the status of that investigation is. Like, this should not, this, we should not have business. And he was a, uh, a subprime mortgage, uh, a credit, uh, uh, shark, right? Like, this is who we have in charge of healthcare. It is a joke. It's a joke that capitalists are in charge of healthcare in America. They shouldn't be in charge of the trains either. Like none, the, it, these these freaks should like. You want to have set up a souvenir stand? Fine. You're not in charge of fucking hospitals. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. All right, folks. Uh, we have some fun stuff. I have. We're gonna the occasion to play. One of my favorite local news clips of all time, and the, the actual subject matter is is pretty grim about uh, a basically cover up of sexual assault at Baylor University, but it really reveals how power works. Because Ken Starr, who's dead, won't be missed, bad guy, um, basically just a hatchet man, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, but after he was done um, with the whole Monica Lewinsky thing, which is a trip. We'll get into that later. Um, he went over to Baylor and covered up this stuff as president and had to get coached through an interview. So we're going to watch this. Uh, we're going to watch this, you know, historical document um, and put it onto the left record yeah. record in the post game. And we'll also be taking y'all's IMs and uh, voicemails. You can give us a call at one nine four zero two eight nine seven two three four. Yeah. I actually wanted to do a call to action on that. Um, folks, uh, Discord and I, uh, voicemails, I would love to hear if 
understaffing is happening where mm. you're working. Yeah. Cause I mean, I feel like, or, or other things like that, what's grinding your gears and, you know, don't um, give away any sort of identifying info if you don't want, but that's what uh, I, I, I'd like to hear what's going on. With yeah, no, that's a good are. call. Um, again, that number is one nine four zero two eight nine seven two three four. We'll see y'all in the post game. Um, I'm going on vacation this week, so no Griscom stream. Matt will have a fun uh, bonus episode uh, for all of y'all up soon, and uh, we'll see you in the post game and for the rest of y'all uh, next week. Take care, everyone. Peace.